We're continuing this morning our series studying the book of Daniel. And this book, it's, uh, it's an ancient piece of literature. But it shouldn't be at all surprising to us that this ancient piece of literature is, is incredibly relevant and timely for us even today, thousands of years in the future. This book narrates the events surrounding God's people being taken into exile. The Babylonian Empire came and laid siege to Jerusalem uh, several hundred years before Christ came. Uh, the people of God experienced incredible uh, suffering and hardship, as uh, God says that's His judgment against their rebellion and their sin against Him. And many of God's people were carried off away from Jerusalem away from their home, away from the temple, away from the place where God dwelled in a unique way among his people. And they were forced to live as slaves and exiles in wicked land under a wicked king where wicked men did wicked things. In order for us to truly grasp the depth of what this book is seeking to communicate to us, we need to understand what a terrible thing this exile was. This isn't homesickness. This isn't being off at sleepaway camp and longing to be home in your own bed. This is something far worse. The people of God experienced incredible oppression and suffering in exile in Babylon. One of my favorite psalms really captures, I think, what it must have felt like for God's people to experience this exile. It's Psalm 137. It's written from this time in the history of God's people. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we we hung up our lyres, our musical instruments, for our captives required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of those songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That question, how do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, is the question that the book of Daniel generally, and Daniel chapter 2 specifically, is going to provide an answer for. The big idea in this text, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The big idea we're going to see as we make it through, make our way through Daniel chapter 2 is this. We have hope in exile, and we can sing the Lord's song because we belong to the God who reveals mysteries and reigns sovereignly. We can have hope in exile because we belong to the God who reveals mysteries and reigns sovereignly. This is 49 verses. We're going to break uh, this chapter into into three sections, three uh, movements. And each one is going to focus on the activity of one of the three main actors, the main uh, subjects in this story. First, we'll look at the troubled king, King Nebuchadnezzar. We'll look at the confident exile, which is Daniel. Then we'll look at the God who rules and reigns in the last section. So we'll look at Daniel chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Before we do that, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak and to bless our time in his word. Our God, we are dependent upon you for everything, for life and breath, for hope. We're dependent upon you to reveal yourself to us. And so we ask that you would do that now in a profound and powerful way. Let your words bear weight upon our hearts. And may we leave your word transformed. Only your spirit can bring that about. So we ask that you would come and do that in us. For Jesus' sake, and we pray in his name. Amen. Daniel chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 through 13. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. Oop, that's chapter 1. Excuse me. 
chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It starts similarly. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, then you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and then we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, And the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. The troubled king. Nebuchadnezzar is an interesting interesting figure historically. He was a brilliant leader. He was a bit of a visionary. According to Babylonian historians in antiquity, it was actually Nebuchadnezzar who designed and commissioned the construction of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Humanly speaking, he was a great king. He was also a cruel, sadistic, and violent man. He was the architect and the mastermind behind the siege of Jerusalem and the subjugation of many people from Jerusalem where he did terrible things to them and forced them to live as slaves in his kingdom. And this great king, this powerful man, the most powerful man in the known world at that time, is having a crisis. He's troubled. He's he's sort of unraveling a little bit. He can't sleep. He's having bad dreams that are tormenting him. And dreams would have been very significant for Nebuchadnezzar. He He was a polytheistic uh, worshiper, and so he would have looked for spiritual significance in just about every situation. And dreams were a big deal to him. And uh, it's it's not completely clear from the text, but he's either having trouble remembering the dream itself, or he remembers the dream and he wants to know what it means. But in either case, he he wants to know what these dreams represent, what they're about, and what their significance to him is. And uh, you know, this is not just an ancient problem. People still look for interpretations from dreams. I don't know if you, if you know this or not. Uh, I went ahead, just because I like to go the extra mile for you, I went ahead and Googled dream interpretation. But I didn't get all the way there because you know how Google does the autocomplete thing in your browser where you're typing and it suggests what you're looking for? I typed in dream interp and it autofilled dream interpretation, snakes, death, and fire. And I was like, I'm out. 
Hopefully none of you have contributed to the data that Google uses to <laughs> fill that in. If so, grab me afterwards, I'll pray for you. Nebuchadnezzar is very upset, he's very confounded, and so he calls in his boys. He calls in the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, and he says, I need some help here. And they say, great, that's our jam, that's what we do, that's what we live to do. These guys would have a long history of sort of uh, books that contained maps and, and charts of how kings had dreamed in the past and what sort of interpretations were given, and they'd be ready to flex their muscles and tell the king what he's looking to know. But Nebuchadnezzar's got a little bit of, cur- of a curveball for him. He's going to add uh, a degree of difficulty to this particular vault. Uh, he's going to say, you've got to give me both the dream and the interpretation. And if not, no big deal. Verse 5, what's he going to do? No, no big deal. This, it's not a problem if you can't do it. You shall just be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be laid in ruins. Oh, but there's, it's not without good news. If you do it, you'll receive gifts and rewards and great honor. Now, I don't know your work situation. Maybe you've had a boss who's made uh, a ridiculous or impossible demand of you before. It's like, Jenkins, I need you to increase profits by 40% next quarter, or I'm going to murder you and your entire family, right? (laughs) That's probably never happened to you. I hope it's never happened to you. And if it has, might I submit that you should resign and find another job. (laughs) But this is exactly what's been said to them. He's asked them to do something that's impossible. It's a completely unreasonable request. And they say, well, King, tell us the dream, and then we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, absolutely not. Give me both so I'll know that this is legitimate. What's happening here? Nebuchadnezzar is, he's raging. Why? Well, we we understand something about about people from, from God's Word. We understand that as people, we operate from the inside out. Our hearts are what drive us. We are what we love fundamentally. And so when we, see, when we see bad acting externally, we know that means something, right? That means something's taking place internally. We're disordered in some way internally. And I think what Nebuchadnezzar is, is dealing with here, the, the internal disorder and conflict that he's in the middle of, is, is he's being confronted with his vexing limitations. Nebuchadnezzar was a, he was a great man. He was a great king and he can't handle his dreams. The problem Nebuchadnezzar is running into is that he is not the God who reveals and he's not the God who reigns sovereignly. And this is a picture of that to him. Fundamentally, what Nebuchadnezzar wants is he wants to be God, right? He wants to be God and he's not and he's just infuriated by this. The uh, atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche famously said, if there is a God, how can I bear to not be that God? That's what Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing right now. But, but here's the thing. You don't have to be a megalomaniacal pagan king to know what this internal disorder is like, right? This, guys, we, we do micro expressions of this all the time. I had to even do some repenting this week as I was studying. When I nurse anxiety and, and fear and worry about my situation, about, about our finances, about, the, about situations in the church, about, about my kids, so often, what's underneath that? How is my heart active in that? It's, it's I want to be God. I want God to order the universe according to the way I think it should work. 
I want him to get on my program, and he's just not doing that. At the bottom of our, of our fear and anxiety and our worry and our anger so often is, is just plain old unbelief. Unbelief that God is good, that he's sovereign, and that we can entrust ourselves to him. I found myself praying this a lot. It's a really simple, memorable quote from Martin Luther. He said, you pray and let God worry. So often I want to I worry. I want somebody else to pray. Let me, let me worry. Let me nurse my fears and my doubts and my anger and my, my anxieties. God's shown us a better way. He's sovereign. He's good. We can trust him. He's God. He's got this. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know God, and so he's not going to do that. Notice that the Chaldeans, they drop a real word of truth on him in the midst of this back and forth. The Chaldeans say to him, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with flesh. Now we need to understand this. These Chaldeans, they don't know God. They're not servants of God. But they've got this exactly right. Truth is truth no matter where you find it, right? Last Saturday, uh, I was watching Florida State just get absolutely dismantled by Louisville. And uh, my little daughter, Eva, was sitting next to me on the couch, and uh, she looked at me at one point, probably sensing my distress, and she said, uh, we, we always cheer for the Seminoles, right, Daddy? Even when they don't show up? <laughs> I said, yes, yes, my child, we do. Now, she knows nothing about football, but she nailed it. She's got that exactly right, and... The Chaldeans, they're they're saying truth to Nebuchadnezzar, and it only enrages him further. Verse 12 says he becomes angry and very furious. And when the Bible says the same thing twice, what does that mean? It means it's huge. It's amplifying it. Nebuchadnezzar is losing his mind, and he orders the execution of all of the wise men in Babylon, including Daniel and his three friends. The situation is incredibly dire. How will Daniel respond? That was the troubled king. Let's look at the confident exile. Let's pick it up in verse 14. We'll read through the middle of verse 19. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. What an incredible contrast this is. Do you see just the, 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 the polar opposites here? You have powerful Nebuchadnezzar, rich, wealthy, in command, able to sentence people to death on a whim, and he's completely unraveling. He is not at peace because of his dreams. And then you have Daniel. Daniel, who could not be more different from Nebuchadnezzar. He has nothing. He is a slave. He has been brought low. He has no prospects, humanly speaking. He is a eunuch. He has been cut off from the possibility of having a family and having a line carry forward his name. And yet he is confident. 
Why is Daniel so confident? Because he knows Yahweh. He knows the true God, and he trusts him. He trusts God in such a way that even when his situation is incredibly bleak, incredibly dire, when everything's gone sideways, he trusts God. Let's look at just a few of the qualities that this trust in God produces in him. It makes him bold. His trust in God makes him bold. When Arioch comes to him, that's like the assassin, that's the chief of the secret police of Nebuchadnezzar. He replies to him with prudence and insight. He's calm. He's thinking clearly. He says, whoa, 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 hang on. Give me an audience before the king, and I will make known the dream and its interpretation. I will do it. He's bold to stand before the king, trusting in God to provide. Now check this out. Does Daniel actually know the dream and its interpretation at this point? No, he doesn't. That doesn't come till later. All he knows is what we saw in chapter 1, verse 17, that God had given Daniel understanding in, in all visions and dreams. Daniel knows God must have raised me up. He must have gifted me in this way for such a time as this. And even though I don't see it, I will be bold to stand before the king and trust that God will give me what I need. God will move. Daniel is bold. Daniel's trust in God also makes him prayerful. He goes with his great need before his great God. But notice this. I love this. He doesn't go alone. He goes to community. He goes to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his, his brothers in, in verse 18. He goes to community to pray, to, to, to enlist these men to pray with him for God to act. And this is incredibly important. And I'm so glad that we, we are looking at this text on the day that we commissioned and recognized and acknowledged our community group leaders. Guys, you just need to know, as long as we are pastors and elders here, we will never stop pleading with you to be involved in community here at Four Oaks. And there's a reason why. It's not so that you can have one more thing to do. It's not because we think you're not busy enough. It's because it's essential. It's essential to your endurance in the faith. There's a lot of reasons I could give you. You're created for it. It's where we exercise the one another's of the faith, love one another, serve one another, bear with one another. But there's one particular reason I really want to point out from this text. Guys, there is a dark day coming for every one of us. One day, every one of us will experience that feeling of the floor just being pulled out from under us. Some of you have already experienced it. It'll be a phone call or a conversation or something that you weren't expecting is just going to rock your universe. And here's the thing. When that day comes, there are two things that will provide a firm foundation for your feet to stand on, and two things only. God's Word and God's people. God's Word will remind you of His precious promises to you, of His kindness to you, His character. And God's people will hold you up in prayer. They will meet your needs materially. They will they will pray for you. They will carry your burdens before the throne of grace with you. And guys, if you don't know you need that, let me just tell you, you need that so badly. Just a couple of weeks ago, in my own community group, uh, several of us were, were sharing and talking about just our needs. And, and it was very clear that many of us were, were dealing with situations where we just, we were outside of our depth. We couldn't, we can't deal with these things on our own. Struggles with Jobs and kids and extended family and relationships and finances, all sorts of things. We're just needing God 
to move. And so as we're praying for one another, I just thought, thank you, God, that we have each other to, to carry these burdens. of other believers who can pray, who can care for me, who can, can remind me of your goodness and your kindness to me. When your darkest day comes, you need a Hananiah and a Mishael and an Azariah. Do you have one? I pray that you will, if you're not in a community group, you'll jump into one and you'll have that. They pray, and I love the simplicity of this. God, give us mercy or we're going to be destroyed. We need you to act. And then I love what Daniel does next. His trust in God also makes him peaceful. Makes him peaceful. God answers their prayers, and he gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation. And where does he do it? In a vision in the what? Night. That means Daniel's doing what? He's sleeping. God gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation in his dream. That means that Daniel prayed to God with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, asked God to give him the interpretation, and then he went to sleep. Again, this contrast is amazing. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, all the power, all the authority, and he's pacing the halls of the palace at night. He can't sleep. And there's Daniel, who is literally under the sentence of death, sleeping like a baby. I love Psalm 127, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Why? Because he gives to his beloved sleep. Daniel's trust in God is so thorough and so complete that he is able to sleep. It's a picture of confidence in God. God gives him the vision and it makes Daniel worshipful. His trust in God makes him worshipful. Let's read, uh, pick it back up in verse 19. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He, re- he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. And you have made known to us. The kings matter. I love this. He wakes up. He has the vision. And what does he do? He doesn't go straight to Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't even go straight to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He goes to worship. He worships his God as the source of all wisdom, the God who rules over all things. This is a deeply theological song of praise to God. God, you are the one who reveals mysteries. You are the one who reigns sovereignly. That's the source of our hope. This God who has revealed himself to us. So it's time for Daniel to go before the king. Pick it up in verse 24. Then Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. And then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, And said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. 
The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that, you have, that I have seen in its interpretation? And Daniel's about to answer that question with a resounding yes. But before he does that, again, we see Daniel's boldness here. He's going to testify for a minute. Verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And we come to the dream, but before we get to the dream, I just want to ask you this question. Before we, before we move away from this portrait of the troubled king and the portrait of the confident exile, which are you more like in crisis? Which picture more resembles who you are when the dark night of the soul comes, when you're troubled? Ask, I can ask this question a little bit differently. Do you have this kind of confidence in God that we see in Daniel? Does your soul have this kind of peace? Guys, God wants to give you this kind of confidence and peace. He wants you to see just how vast and how glorious and how in control he is of your situations. And he wants you to live and experience life differently because of it. God is the one who declares the end from the beginning. He's the one who reveals mysteries. He is the one who reigns sovereignly. And to illustrate and to demonstrate that for us, let's look at the dream. Pick it up in verse 31. I'll read through the end of the chapter. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, verse 36. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. Verse 43. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. 
but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. It's good for us to hear the word of God read over us. So here's the dream. There's a great image. It's comprised of four sections, each of different materials. And then a stone comes, a stone that's not made by any human hand, hewn by the very hand of God, and it crushes the image. And the stone grows to become a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And the interpretation of this dream is very interesting and it's very clear. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, which sounds pretty nice, right? Who doesn't want to be the head of gold? But things go dark from there. The second kingdom, the, the, the chest and arms of silver, there's a, another kingdom coming. It doesn't say who this kingdom is, only that this kingdom is inferior to Nebuchadnezzar's. Then there's a third kingdom of bronze coming. It doesn't say who that is. Only that this kingdom will fill the whole earth. There's a fourth kingdom of iron and clay. It's coming. It'll be strong as iron, but it'll be a divided kingdom. Now, before we keep going, just for a second here, there's a temptation for us when we come to this sort of prophetic literature to overinterpret what we see. To, uh, to drill down into every single bit of detail so that we're trying to sort of connect dots and soon we're like the, the police detective in the, in the procedural drama who's got the board with the string, you know, this giant thing, he's trying to piece it together and he just kind of stands there and looks at it. That's not what we want to do here. As I was uh, studying this text this week, the commentaries I was reading had no shortage of ink spilled about who these kingdoms are and what they represent. And so most people think that the second kingdom is the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the third kingdom is, is the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and then the fourth is, is the Roman Empire, because that's the empire where the stone comes, and that's Jesus, and we're trying to connect all the dots. And here, here's the thing. Let's just say this. Let's just breathe for a minute and say this. That's not the point of the dream. What is the point of the dream? The fifth kingdom. The point of the dream is the stone we don't need any more interpretation than what Daniel has given to us. It may be all those other things are true, but the point we cannot miss, we cannot miss the forest for the trees. The fifth kingdom is the stone. It is the kingdom that's going to come, and it's going to put down and stand above every other ruler. It's going to be unlike any kingdom that's ever come before. And it's going to be unlike every other kingdom that's ever come before in these ways. First, it's not made by human hands. It's not... It hasn't come about as a result of human ingenuity or force of will or exercise of authority. God sets it up. God himself 
establishes this kingdom. This kingdom will never be destroyed. It'll never be defeated. No rival will ever stand against it. It will last forever. This kingdom will never be given to another people. No one will ever come and depose this king. And this king will never forsake the people who have been given to him. This kingdom will also crush every other kingdom and every other empire, every other ruler who came before. It'll break them into pieces. They'll be blown away like chaff at the summer threshing table till not a trace of these other kingdoms is found, verse 35. What is this fifth kingdom, church? It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is life with God under the redemptive reign of Jesus Christ. I love Dallas Willard's definition of the kingdom of God. It's, it's the range of God's effective will. It's where what God wants done gets done. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done gets done. And this kingdom of God, for those of us who live between the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ, we, we experience this kingdom reality sort of in two ways. We experience it in the already and in the not yet. We're already members of this kingdom. We've already been granted access into this kingdom by faith through the finished work of Jesus. So that's our permanent home address is in the kingdom of God. But at the same time, it's also our future hope. It's something that we're waiting to experience the fullness of when Jesus comes again. It's already and not yet. You see, this stone, it points to Jesus Christ. It represents Jesus. Remember what Jesus said on the very first day of his public ministry after his baptism? Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus says all of those Old Testament writings that looked ahead prophetically to this kingdom that would come, it's here. Repent and believe this good news. It's here. It's me. It's me. Repent and put your trust in me. And this kingdom, this kingdom, it starts small, just like the stone. It starts with just a Galilean peasant carpenter and a few fishermen. It's a ragtag bunch. But the next thing you know, the whole world is turned upside down by this move of the gospel, this expanse of the kingdom. And guys, listen, one day, Jesus is going to return. And he's going to inaugurate the fullness of that kingdom here on earth. And on that day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the point of the dream. So what's God saying here? What does God want to communicate through this dream? I think he wants to say something to Nebuchadnezzar. I think he wants to say something to his people as well. To Nebuchadnezzar, he wants to say this. Nebuchadnezzar, you're building a great kingdom, but your kingdom is built on and stands upon clay feet. It stands on feet of clay. You are dust. You need to know who you are. Nebuchadnezzar says, but I, but I defeated your people. I sacked Jerusalem, the, the instruments and the vessels that were used in the worship of you from the temple. They're sitting in my treasury house right now. I am the great king. I'm the one who put God's people to flight. I'm the one who's going to reign forever. I'm going to pass down my kingdom from generation to generation. I'm the man. God says no. 
You see, you're comparing yourself to the other kings who have come before. And you might be pretty good compared to them. But the king of kings is coming. Last year, a video popped up online. Somebody's cell phone video from inside of Dave and Buster's. And it's a, 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 pop, a Papa Shop basketball setup. You've seen the Papa Shop basketball. It's like the two hoops and it's all enclosed by a net. And there's a certain amount of time on the clock and two people compete to see who can make the most baskets. And in this video, one of the people competing in the Papa Shot is a kid, probably an elementary age kid. And he was pretty good. He probably made about half of his shots and he was doing well. But he was getting slaughtered because the person he was playing against was Kevin Durant. Okay, if you don't know sports, Kevin Durant is one of the three best basketball players alive today. He's six foot eleven, incredibly skilled, you know, can shoot anywhere in the gym, has incredible skill, incredible range, and he was just in Dave and Buster's just like ruining kids' worlds, just taking them on in Papa Shot basketball. And the thing is, the kid was pretty good. And probably among his peer group, among his friends, he had it going on. He was probably like the Papa Shot master among his friends. But that's Kevin Durant, man. You're not going to defeat Kevin Durant. That's a picture of what God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar here. You think you're the man, Nebuchadnezzar? But the man is coming. You need to humble yourself. You need to bow the knee. You need to recognize who you are. Nebuchadnezzar, you... You need to feel and face what this means for you. But he doesn't. Let's make no mistake, he doesn't. It's true that in verse 46, he, he falls on his face before Daniel. He acknowledges Daniel's God. But we need to be clear here. Nebuchadnezzar is not converted. Nebuchadnezzar has knowledge. He's probably even given assent to that knowledge of who the true God is. But that's not saving faith. That's not all saving faith consists of. There must be knowledge, there must be assent to that knowledge, but there's a third element that is so important. We must entrust ourselves to God. We must entrust ourselves and surrender ourselves, stretch ourselves out upon who God is in repentance and obedience and faith. And does Nebuchadnezzar do that? No, he doesn't. And we know that because in the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 1, what's Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's building a 90-foot image made of pure gold, all of gold. Surely we see the significance of that. He's ordering everyone in his kingdom to bow down and worship it. See, Nebuchadnezzar is amazed, but he's not changed. How about you? Is God just someone that you think you understand intellectually, someone that you believe in? someone that you've been amazed by? Or have you bowed the knee? Have you stretched yourself out upon him? Have you renounced all worldly claims on your life, repented of your sin, and are you seeking to live a life of obedience to him? If not, the warnings to Nebuchadnezzar, they apply to you as well. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what God's saying to Nebuchadnezzar. What's he saying to his people? Daniel and us, I think he's saying three things. First, very quickly, even in your exile, I'm at work. Even in your exile, I'm at work. Your days may be dark. 
You may suffer, you may be oppressed, you may be alienated, but listen, I'm sovereign. I'm in charge. I'm working in your circumstances. Don't you think if God could be at work in Nebuchadnezzar's dreams to deliver Daniel and his friends from the sentence of death that was placed upon them and to place them in a high position in the Babylonian government, if you think God could be at work in that way, don't you think he can be at work in your situation too? That problem that seems to have no solution, God says, I'm at work even there, down to the most minute detail of your life. Even in your exile, I'm at work. The second thing God is saying, don't entrust yourself to lesser kingdoms. You know, we've said this before in this series, but it bears repeating. If you're someone who's freaking out because of this election right now, because you think that one or both of these major political party candidates is like the, the Antichrist who's going to usher in the Great Tribulation, and you're just losing your mind, we've got to do something. If that's you, let's don't do that. Let's remember, we're citizens of another kingdom. Our hope is not in America or in a political party or in a candidate or in any earthly leader. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. We are citizens primarily of that kingdom. So yes, enjoy your country, serve your country, labor for the flourishing of your country. Address systemic issues that exist in your country, but don't set your hope there. Please. Seek the kingdom of God first. There's a lesson here from Daniel and his friends as well. If you are given the rewards of the earthly kingdom here, they're given power, authority, riches, good stuff, a good name, if you're given those things, don't give them back. Receive them with thanksgiving and enjoy them. But don't place, your, don't place your trust in them. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Daniel, they didn't put their trust in it. How do we know that? Because we know where they're headed in the chapters that are coming. They're headed out of the king's court, into the fiery furnace, and into the lion's den. Remember, you're citizens of another kingdom. And the third thing that God is saying to his people, and this is so sweet, I haven't forgotten you in your sin. I have not forsaken you. This kingdom that's coming is the answer to the problem of their exile that they're experiencing in that moment. So yes, God's people, you are in exile. You are strangers in a foreign land because of your rebellion, because of your sin, but your sin doesn't get the final word. My promise is the final word. So in these moments, I'm disciplining you, I'm working in your circumstances, and I have promised good to you. And people of God, the final chapter of your story has been written, and it is glorious. So people of God, remember that you are looking for a heavenly city a city with foundations whose maker and builder is God. So take heart. Don't be afraid. God reveals mysteries and he reigns sovereignly and you belong to him. And so as Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure 
to give you the kingdom. Would you pray with me, please?